well this morning. If you want to stand with me, we'll begin this morning with our call to worship taken from Psalm 19. I've said many times before, I have a lot of favorite psalms. <laughs> this, is, this is one of them, Psalm 19. And it, it's because it talks about these two books of revelation. General revelation, which is God revealing himself through nature. And special revelation, which is God revealing himself through his word. And we see both of these talked about in this psalm. But ultimately, the psalmist ends with this almost prayer that let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. So let's... Um, Let's be called to worship this morning, to worship our triune God. I'll read the bold section, if you'll follow along after me, and read the non-bold. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. If you want to remain standing and turn to him, 57 will sing. Praise to the Lord. Yeah. 
as we open our word and we find in Exodus 4 this conversation between Moses and, and God I want you to to notice some things notice the parallel if you will between the authentication if you will of the message that Jesus brought and what God is is preparing Moses to bring the message, the hope, to God's people. There's this parallelism that is, is just really rich. And if, if I could, this is a good, good a place as, as any, I'd like to encourage all of us that as you're reading his word, that you don't just treat it as a duty or a checklist, but you read, read it thoughtfully and earnestly. And remember, I can remember whenever I was thinking of the Old Testament when I was first brand new in the Lord. And the Old Testament seemed like this foreign, this foreign entity, if you will. This foreign, something completely separate from the New Testament. And as I grew in the Lord, I understood more and more that the Old Testament is, is just as much a revealed word as the New Testament is. That we can recognize Christ in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's, it's implied. Sometimes it's presented as a Christophany. Which is a, a pre-incarnate Christ. That has shown up. In Daniel 7. We, we read last week in, in Daniel 7. Where Daniel sees this vision as one like the Son of Man. Speaking of Jesus. Jesus is throughout the Old Testament. Also, any time that Jesus or Paul mentions scriptures in the New Testament, there wasn't a New Testament yet. So when Paul in Acts 17 says that any time he went into a new town and he went into the synagogues, that was the first thing he did. He went into the synagogues and he reasoned with the Jews from the scriptures. The scriptures he's talking about there is the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. The writings. That's the Old Testament. They proved, if you will, Jesus from the Old Testament. That's all they had at that time. Jesus himself said in Luke 24, starting with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Again, reading the Old Testament, showing himself in the Old Testament. I think that is just really powerful and it brings a new respect for the Old Testament. If you were like me, just starting out, not understanding the value of the Old Testament and how it is a part of the entire Word of God. And unlike uh, Andy Stanley who says we need to, uh, what's the word he used? Unhitch. Unhitch. Unhitch the Old Testament. What a blasphemy. So, anyway, I'm done preaching there. Let's go to Exodus chapter 4, 1 through 5, and then 10 through 11. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. But the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, a staff? And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And starting in verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? 
Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Would you all join me in this prayer of confession? Read it together, please. Heavenly Father, you are the creator of all things. The heavens declare your glory, and the sky proclaims your handiwork. All of scripture speaks of the saving work of Christ, and the redemption he has accomplished for his people. Your word testifies that you are holy, and your ways are true. And yet because of our sin, we doubt you and your ways. We transgress your law and sin against you. Forgive us, Lord, we pray. Help us to confess our sin and our need for Christ. Amen. Would you please remain standing and turn to hymn number 90. This is the first of uh, our Christmas songs <coughs> since we're in the Christmas season. We thought we would start today. <laughs> we only got a few weeks, and we want to sing them up. So um, I really do like this one. So sing with me. Yeah. 
one thing that we all share as believers, and that's an assurance. An assurance that comes only from God. This assurance is not of anything that we've done. It's not of any gifting that we have. But it's an assurance that God is sovereign and that we need Him and He provides. In 1 John 5, 9 through 12, as you're reading through his epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you're going to see a similarity between his epistles and his gospel. It's obvious that this is the same one. 5, 9 through 12. If we receive the tes testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater for this is the testimony of God, that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and that this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the assurance that can only come from you. Father, we thank you that uh, this first Advent, this first showing up this that we're about to celebrate for Christmas, Lord, we are overjoyed understanding what this means to us. This is the reason we, we gather together to, to praise and to worship. We thank you, Father, for your provision, for the gift that you've given us in eternal life, for the assurance that we have in you alone. Father, this day, may you be honored, may you be glorified as we worship you in truth, spirit as Pastor Kendall brings your word quicken our hearts Lord clear our minds that we would receive your truth by your spirit in Jesus name in our uh, 1689 Baptist confession it speaks of Christ the mediator if you'd all read along with me, please. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, being the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. Good morning again. It's good to be with you all. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5, we'll be... Continuing our study through John's gospel this morning, and we're, we're still in chapter 5, and we're, we're still going to have a little bit more to go after this Sunday, but um, I've, I've enjoyed getting into the depths of what's happening here, because like we said a couple weeks ago, th this chapter starts off with a miraculous healing. There's a man that's been lame for 38 years, and Jesus heals him instantly. There's no delay. There's no warm sensation. There's no 15 minutes of prayer. Instantly, he commands the man to stand up, take up his mat, and walk, and the man is healed. And the real twist to this miracle and sign comes because Jesus does this on the Sabbath day, which was Saturday, and he, he upsets the religious leaders of that day to the point where they begin to persecute him. 
And he defends himself and he says these words in verse 17, my father is working until now and I myself am working. And instead of alleviating the, the anger of the religious leaders, it only enrages them more to the point where in verse 18 it says, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That these religious leaders understood Jesus' claim rightly. When he says, my father is working until now, and I myself am working, he is putting himself on the same plane as the father, making himself equal with God, making himself God. And so verses 19 through the end of the chapter are really Jesus just explaining this, or how I like to think about it, we talked about a transfiguration with words, that Jesus is revealing his divine nature to the people of the day. That for them, they would have looked at Jesus, seen his signs, his miracles, and they would have said, maybe this is a really good person, but they would have only seen him according to his humanity, to his human nature, and they would have not seen that this is God incarnate. <laughs> and so verses 19 through 29 are Jesus explaining that he is not only the son of man, but the son of God, the one that can give spiritual life to his people and will one day raise them to resurrection life, where they will dwell with God for eternity. So these are astounding claims that Jesus is making about himself. He's not just saying he's a good moral teacher. He's not just saying that he is a man that's living in right relationship with God. He is saying definitively, I am God. I am one with the Father. I am the Son of God, the second person of the triune God. And this aggravates the people of the day even more so. And so Jesus, in our passage today, because he is patient, because he is, he is understanding, he is going to make his case for why they should believe him. And he's going to bring, almost in this court case, witnesses. He's going to bring these witnesses to speak on, on his behalf, to bear witness that they should believe that he is the Son of God, the Incarnate One. The four witnesses here he's going to bring is John the Baptist, the works that the Father gave him to do, the Father himself, and the Old Testament scriptures. And what we're going to see today is that even though Jesus brings all these witnesses to bear witness and testify to who he is and what he came to do, ultimately, it's not going to convince these religious leaders that they're still going to reject him. They have the truth right in front of their nose, literally. And they're going to turn away from this man, from their Savior. But all this is to show that they have no excuse, that there's no reason that they shouldn't turn to the Lord. And just as in a court, you need two or three witnesses, Jesus himself is going to bring witnesses to bear on him and his identity. So I'm going to read the passage for us this morning. We'll pray, and then we'll study this passage. Starting in verse 30. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we come before you this morning, if we're honest, heavy laden, distracted, overwhelmed by life and the worries and concerns that, that plague us every day. There is much going on in our world. There is much going on in our hearts and in our minds and our families. Lord, and we come before you this morning for this hour, this, this time where we hear your word, where we sing your word, where we pray your word, where we preach your word, and we come, Lord, asking for your help, asking you to speak to us through your word that we might see Christ this morning, see the work that he has accomplished for sinners like us, and that we would rejoice, that we would worship, and that we would rest this morning in the finished work of Christ, trusting in him alone for salvation, and we pray this morning that we would, we would rest in Christ, rest in your word, and by your spirit this morning you would strengthen us, save us, Lord, and empower us to do your will. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. I don't know about you guys, my wife has a couple pet peeves about me. <laughs> Just a couple, right? Maybe she can attest to some of this. Some of them are me biting my fingernails. It's a bad habit. I'm trying to break it. I'm not very good at breaking it, and she gets on my face a lot, and it's good. But maybe the biggest pet peeve she has with me is my inability to find things. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else has this problem. She will send me somewhere. Honey, can you go get this thing? Tell me right where it's at, I will look for it, and I won't be able to find it. And it will be right in front of my face, and I still can't see it, and she'll get frustrated, and she'll go over there and open the drawer, and it's right there, and I missed it the whole time. I don't know what it is, I don't know why, That's maybe it's a guy thing, I don't know, but I can't see things that are right in front of me. And that is what we're looking at today, is these religious leaders, they missed what was right in front of them. They opened the drawer of the scriptures, looked at it, and what was right there, what was right in front of them the whole time, they completely missed. They were blind to the testimony of the scriptures and John and the Father and the works that Jesus did. They were blind. And Jesus here, as we've said, is claiming many great and wonderful things about himself. Not only that he is the Son of God, but he is the son of man. Not only is he the Messiah, but he is the second person of the triune God. Not only is he the Christ, the one promised, the anointed one, but he is the judge of all the earth. He is making great and mighty claims about himself. And the questions that we might ask of these religious leaders and the Jews of that day is, why should they believe this man? Why would you believe someone who was claiming to be God? Would you just believe anybody if they said they were God? There's a lot of wackos out there. Why should they believe Jesus? What makes his claims to divinity true? And maybe, most pointedly, can't they just claim ignorance? Can't they just claim, we didn't know, nobody told us, how were we supposed to know? So as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to see that, as I said, Jesus takes his case to court, in a sense, not literally, but with his words. In these couple verses, these words are used over 14 times, these court-like words, judge, judgment, testimony, bear witness, accuse. All these words are prevalent throughout this paragraph in John chapter 5. And as I said, Jesus is going to bring four witnesses to the fact that he is the incarnate Son of God. 
and because it's helpful to memorize, we're going to talk about it this way. The first witness is the Baptist. The second witness is the works. The third witness is the Father. And the fourth witness is the Scriptures. So we have the Baptist, the works, the Father, and the Scriptures. And so we see Jesus here talking about himself. And in verse 31, it might be sort of odd to us. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony isn't true. It sounds like Jesus is saying, if I say things, that's a lie. <laughs> that's not what he's saying. He's saying that in the court, in the, pub, the court of public opinion, if you will, if I just talk about myself, you won't, you won't believe me. But if I bring witnesses, two or three witnesses, to bear witness to who I am and what I came to do, that will prove my case. And so he begins with John the Baptist in verses 32 through 35. Jesus is saying, you shouldn't be surprised. These claims that I'm making about who I am, my divinity, that I'm the Son of God, that I'm the judge of all, that the Father has given me all power to execute judgment, these should not be surprising statements. And he goes back to this first witness, which is John the Baptist. Now, this is the whole point of John the Baptist. <laughs> he has one purpose in the scriptures, and that is to prepare the way for the Christ, for the Messiah. We see this even back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 40. It says there's going to be one, there's going to be a voice that cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Malachi chapter 3 and 4 talks about this one that's going to come like Elijah that's going to prepare the way for the Lord, for the Messiah. In the other Gospels, we learn about John the Baptist leaping in the womb of his mother as he approaches Mary, who's pregnant with Christ. And in, even in John's Gospel, if you want to turn back with me to John chapter 1, we get this sort of heavenly perspective of the purpose of John, and it says in the prologue in John chapter 1, verse 6, it says, a man was sent by God, <laughs> that there is a divine mission that is upon John. There was a man sent from God, that John the Baptist was sent by God as a witness to bear witness to the light, is what it says in John chapter 7. And he's questioned early on in John's Gospel by the religious leaders. Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you a reincarnation of Elijah? Are you the prophet in Deuteronomy 18? And John the Baptist says, no. I'm not any of those things. I'm just a voice in the wilderness crying, prepare the way of the Lord. And then maybe most explicitly in John chapter 1, verse 29, and then in verse 34, John says, when he sees Christ walking, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then he says in verse 34, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. So Jesus is saying, don't be surprised. John already told you what's going on. He, he prepared the way for me. He was the forerunner. He said explicitly, that is the Son of God. You shouldn't be surprised. And yet, they reject Jesus and they reject John. And Jesus even says here, you were willing to rejoice in John's life for a while. And the implication there is that you rejected him ultimately. And if we go to Matthew chapter 4, even some of these religious leaders were coming to John. They were being baptized. But then John proclaims this message of repentance, turning from sin, turning from their evil ways. And the Pharisees reject this message. They want to keep their law. They want to keep their moral outward appearance. And they reject John. And he calls them a brood of vipers. And we can think of the parable of the seeds. They're like the seed that was sown on the rocky soil that springs up with joy for a while, but then is crushed out by the persecution and the trials of the world. And so many, maybe many of us can think of people like that in our life who maybe 
for a while looked like they were going to bear fruit for the kingdom of God. Maybe they believed the message. Maybe they even had some change in their life. But ultimately, it led to them going back to their old ways. And sadly, the seed was choked out. That's what is the case of these religious leaders. They believed John for a moment, but they ultimately rejected him, his message, and the Christ. So Jesus brings another witness in verse 26, he talks about his works. In verse 36, he talks about his works. And he says, the testimony that I have is actually greater than John's testimony. And this testimony is the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. We see here, in verse 36, the divine mission of the Son of God. That there was a plan and purpose of God even before the Incarnation. What does it say in verse 36? For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Seems to imply that there was a sentness to the Son, that even before He took on flesh, there's a mission of the Son. We call this, in theology, the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption, that in eternity past, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had a plan of redemption, that the Father would send the Son, that the Son would take on flesh, and that the Spirit would empower the Son without measure to accomplish redemption. We see this talked about in the Old Testament. We also see it in the New Testament, that before the Incarnation, there was this mission of the Son. And so, we can talk about it in sort of these theological ways, but theological ways, but really what we're saying is that the Son came willingly. He wasn't reluctantly forced by the Father to do something and taking on flesh, that this was the eternal plan and purpose of the triune God. It wasn't plan B, it wasn't plan C, or D, or E. It was the plan of God in eternity past. And we see in these words of Jesus, he says the works that he's doing, that's not just a reference to his miracles, right? Not just a reference to the miracles that Jesus is doing, but all his work of redemption. If you remember in John chapter 4, verse 34, there's this funny interaction that happens after the woman at the well. His disciples come to him and they say, Rabbi, you need to eat some food. And he says, I have food that you don't know about. <laughs> like the secret food. And they're asking, what is he talking about? What kind of food is he referring to? And he says this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. To accomplish his work. We see again... That it's not just the miracles that Jesus did, but it's also his work of redemption. Him fulfilling the law. Him taking on flesh, acting in perfect obedience to the point that in John 17, when he's saying the high priestly prayer, he can say, I have accomplished all that you gave me to do. I did it. I paid in full. I've done the work that you gave me to accomplish. It's complete. The work is done. So these are the works that the Father has given to the Son, and the Son is bearing witness through these works that He is the Son of God. He is the sent one. He is the one promised in Isaiah 53 that would do the work of the Father and accomplish redemption. So we've seen the Baptist as a witness. We've seen the works of Jesus as a witness. And then in verse 37 and 38, we see that the Father Himself is a witness to the Son of God. Jesus says, the Father Himself has borne witness about me. And if I'm honest, there I have really struggled with these couple verses. There's a lot of commentators that point to this bearing witness of the Father to the Son, and they point back to the baptism of Christ. We actually read it this morning, actually where the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And so many commentators point to that and say, this is the bearing witness of the Father to the Son. 
But if you look at the next verse, it says, His voice you have never heard. So that seems to contradict them hearing the voice of God at the baptism of Christ. And so it's, it's hard to disagree with some commentators. But, and so I was kind of wrestling with this passage. I was like, why does that feel so at tension? Why does that feel at odds? And it wasn't until I saw another, another commentator comment, and he said this. It's not the audible voice of the Father that is spoken of here at his baptism, but the voice of the Father in the Scriptures. So it's not this audible voice of God that's bearing witness to the Son. It's the voice of the Father in His Word. That when these people would read the Old Testament, they were to hear the Father bearing witness to the divinity of the Son of God, the one that would take on flesh and accomplish redemption. And so this really leads us into the fourth witness, the final witness, which is the Scriptures. So we've seen the John the Baptist bear witness, the works of Christ bear witness, the Father himself bearing witness, and finally in verse 39, Jesus puts the final nail in the coffin of his witness case when he says that it's the Scriptures that bear witness about me. And as Daryl helpfully pointed out, this morning, the people in this day did not have the New Testament. All they had were the Old Testament scriptures. And so in verse 39, when Jesus says, you search the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, independent of the New Testament, bearing witness that Jesus is the Christ, and that the scriptures themselves, the Old Testament, bears witness to the person and work of Christ in his sufferings and his glory. And as I said, this is Jesus' final nail in the coffin of the, the case that these religious leaders are saying, we didn't know you were the Son of God. We don't, we don't know what your mission is. We don't know who you are. Jesus is saying, no, it's been in front of you the whole time. That these religious leaders, these Pharisees, thought they knew the word. They were people of the book. They were people of the Word. They had most of the Old Testament memorized. They literally tied the law and the scriptures to their forehead, to their arms. If you've ever seen an Orthodox Jew, they'll tie this little box around their arm, literally tying the scriptures to themselves. I was touring a synagogue recently. At the threshold of the door, there's a little scroll that's posted. And they touch that before they walk into the, in the synagogue. The law in stone is literally written at the front in giant stone, pin giant stone words, the law of God. <laughs> the scriptures are not absent from these Jewish people. They know the word. They know the scriptures. They know the law. They know the prophets. It's literally strapped to their body. And what Jesus is saying here is they've missed the whole point. They missed the whole point of the Old Testament. They missed the whole point of the scriptures. They missed it. And in this reversal, Jesus, who was being accused, is now accusing them. He's saying, you search the scriptures, thinking that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. And the reason he knows this is because they are the ones that have rejected him. They've rejected the one sent from the Father. They rejected the Christ, the Son of God. That the very thing that they rely on the most, the law of God, the word of God, the very thing that they are using to accuse Jesus of breaking the law, of being a blasphemer, the very thing that they have set their hope on is the thing that bears witness to the one standing right in front of them. And they miss it. The incarnate Son of God, the one sent by the Father. These Jews had searched the Scripture, and they missed the whole point. They missed that all the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, are about Jesus. They're about His person, about His work, about who He is and what He came to do. That the Scriptures for these Jewish religious leaders had become simply a book of moral commands. 
It had become a book of cleaning up the outside, good moral stories, external obedience, wise teachings. But it was absent of the saving work of the one mediator between God and man. They'd missed the whole point. And Jesus here is claiming that all of the Old Testament is pointing toward him. And so as we walk away from this passage, as we try to apply this to our lives and to, as we go from here this, this Sunday, two things. First, there's no lack of witnesses to our need of Christ, right? As we read this morning, the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation itself shows us there is a God, that he's good, that he's benevolent, that he cares about us, that he's created the world and us and everything in it, that there is a God. And Paul says in Romans 2 that our conscience, even the Gentile people that don't have the law, our conscience bears witness that we're sinful, that when we do something wrong, we know it. No matter how much we try to suppress it, we know that we are sinners. And we saw today in the scriptures, in John chapter 5, that scripture bears witness of this Savior. That not even the Old Testament saints could claim that they don't know who the Savior is. They know that they need a mediator and that it is the Christ, the Son of God. So we see here that there's no lack of witnesses. Creation tells us there's a God. Our conscience tells us that we're sinners. And scripture tells us that we need a Savior. And yet... No one comes. <laughs> no one comes to the Lord. These religious leaders, they reject the Messiah that's standing right in front of them. A veil remains over their eyes, as Paul says. Their sin calluses them to these words, these loving words of the Son, saying, come to me for life, come to me for forgiveness. They reject him. They refuse to repent. They refuse to turn. And maybe you know someone like this, right? Maybe you, there's an atheist in your life or maybe just a coworker that doesn't know the Lord and they say things like this. I would believe if I saw this. I would believe if I saw that. There's just not enough evidence for me to believe in Christ and the scriptures and the gospel. I was watching a YouTube video once. Somebody said, I need some proof. If there was two moons in the sky, then I would believe. Like, what sort of arbitrary thing is that, right? But, but that's the sort of logic that we're led to, is we just end up demanding things. If there was this, if there was two moons, if there was three suns, we're just making up things to keep us from believing what creation is already proclaiming. That there is a God, and that He is good. And so what we see here in John chapter 5 is that there's no lack of testimony. And actually, in Luke 16, there's this parable of rich man and Lazarus. Rich man and Lazarus. The rich man goes to the place of torment. Lazarus goes to the place of eternal bliss at Abraham's side. And the rich man is crying out for help. He says, I just need a drip of water to quench my thirst. And... Abraham says, there's a chasm between us. It can't be breached. And he says, well, send someone to my five brothers and tell them what is coming. And he says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't believe even if someone should rise from the dead. Even a miracle of resurrection can't convince someone of Christ, but the law and the prophets can and so what we're saying here is that the testimony of God in the scriptures to Christ, empowered by the Spirit, is the only thing that is able to save sinners. No miracle can save, no two moons appearing in the sky, no wise words from me, no good advice that I can give you, no healing I can perform can save someone. It is only God working through the scriptures, revealing the person and work of Christ, empowered by the Spirit. It must be Christ and Him crucified, as Paul would say. And that's why we are what we are. That's why we try to proclaim Christ from the Scriptures every Sunday, whether we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. 
whether we're in an epistle or a gospel. Wherever we are, we try to proclaim Christ in all the scriptures. And what Jesus is saying here, verse 39 should be so convicting to us. <laughs> what Jesus is saying is there are many who know the scriptures, but do not know the Savior. There's many who know Sunday school stories about Jesus, about Abraham, but they do not know the saving work of Christ. There are many who trust in miracles, but not the Messiah, the one mediator between God and man. And Jesus is saying here, you can read your Bible every day, you can have scripture memorized, you can know all these great and mighty things and still miss the whole point. The scriptures are about the saving work of Christ. As Daryl mentioned in Luke 24, he explained to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What does Peter do on the day of Pentecost? The Spirit is poured out. Yeah, there's speaking in tongues. Yeah, there's lots of people being saved. But what is Peter doing? He's proclaiming Christ in all the scriptures, in Isaiah, in the Psalms, in the prophets. He's proclaiming Christ in all the scriptures. He's saying that which the prophets spoke about is Christ. Promise fulfillment. The Old Testament promises the Christ to come. The New Testament testifies that he has come. And that's why every week we need to come and behold Christ in the scriptures, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we admit that there are many deep truths that we don't understand. And we pray, Lord, that you would unveil our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our minds, that we might see Christ this morning more clearly in the scriptures. His work as the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that we might see our great need for him this morning, and that by faith alone, we would trust in him for eternal life, that we would trust in him for help, that we would not run to our works, that we would not run to our obedience, but that we would run to Christ this morning and rest in him alone for salvation. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So we come to the time in our service where we partake of the Lord's Supper, this great meal that we partake of every week. And as we talked about, John says these words, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That in many ways, there's many parallels between the Passover meal and what we are partaking of in the Lord's Supper. That the Passover lamb and the Passover meal was to be a memory. It was to remind them of what? The exodus from slavery to Egypt to bondage under Pharaoh. And they were to partake of this meal and remember this saving, redemptive work of God in the Old Testament. What do we do at the Lord's Supper? We partake of this meal, wine and bread, remembering what God has done. Not in saving us from slavery to Pharaoh or to earthly bondage, but slavery to sin and death. That he has done it, he sent his son in flesh, taken on flesh, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. So we come this morning to the table, confessing our sin, confessing our weakness, but also rejoicing in what Christ has done. And so if you're not a believer, if you haven't believed in Christ, we ask that you remain seated and ponder these things and think about the saving work of Christ and our need for a Savior. But if you are a believer, if you have trusted in Christ, if your eyes have been opened to the glory of the gospel, if you felt your guilt and your need for a Savior, then this meal is for you. And we come eating and drinking and feeding upon Christ by faith, knowing this is a means of grace. It's a means of maturing us as believers, assuring us that Christ has done it, not looking to ourselves, but looking to the one who's done all for us. Let's pray for 
this meal this morning. Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Supper that we get to partake of. We pray that it would be a means of grace, that we would not trust in these physical objects themselves. They have no power in and of themselves to do anything. They are merely physical words that you have put before our eyes, reminders of your covenant blessings, that when we eat and drink by faith, we're reminded of the gospel, we're reminded of Christ, and we're saved. Because that is how we are saved, by faith alone. So this morning, would we trust in Christ, would we eat and drink by faith, and would we look to our Savior, whose body was broken, whose blood was spilled, that our sin and iniquity might be covered. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. If you want to just form a line here, grab the elements, take them back to your seat. We'll, part the, we'll partake of them all together at one time. So come as you're able. reminded each week that this is not a meal for the strong, it's not for the religious elite, it's for the one that recognizes their need for a savior and comes humbly to the throne of grace. So as we take, we eat, we remember, and we believe that Christ's body was broken to forgive all of our sins. same way we take the cup of wine, this living drink, and we're reminded of Christ's living blood spilt as the lamb without blemish was put, the blood of the lamb was put over the doorpost. So for us, may the blood of the lamb be on us that death might pass over us, all of our sin and iniquity covered. And so each week we take, we drink, we remember and we believe that Christ's blood was spilled for the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. Amen. Do you want to stand and we'll respond to this great work of redemption that God has brought through Christ by singing in 224 before the throne.
now the time of our offerings where we remember each week that we're called to give a portion of what God has given us. Remember, all things come from Him. A portion of what He's given us back to Him as an act of worship, as an act of adoration, thanking Him for all the things that He has given us, not to earn anything from Him, but out of gratitude for what He's given us. So let's pray for our offerings this morning. Lord, we thank You for all that Your hand has provided. Great is Your faithfulness to us, Lord. We have much to be thankful for, and even when times are difficult, when money is tight, or when when we don't know how we're going to live our lives, Lord, you provide for us, and we thank you, Lord, and we pray that you would use these humble offerings for the work of your kingdom and for the proclamation of the gospel here in Decatur and to the ends of the earth. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. you please sing with me hymn 13 the doxology praise god from whom all blessings flow praise him all creatures here below praise him above ye heavenly hosts Grace and peace of our Lord as you go from here.